0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Beginning in verse nine, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads this way. Since therefore This is the word of the Lord. The late theologian and pastor John Stott wrote of this. He says, The judge has pronounced us righteous, and the Father has welcomed us home. When it comes to us taking our time in reading and studying the Bible, one of the easiest clues that we ought to be looking for whenever we read the text in order to understand the Scripture is is to look for those repeated words and repeated themes and repeated phrases, right? In fact, they are the the easiest clues to identify in a text. Not to mention that repetition typically is a very common feature in the Bible, and, and it really helps us to see what the author's intention is, right? Oftentimes the words and phrases and themes that are repeated several times, right? in the text and context really help us to understand where the, the author of the text is going, right? It can be an important clue of us trying to figure out exactly what is meant in a particular uh, passage of scripture. And so if you read a scripture and you see a word or phrase repeated several times, you can be pretty confident that that repetition is an important detail to pay attention to. Just like when we look in our text here, I don't know if you've noticed, but when we read these three verses, you'll see a few words that are that are repeated a number of times. For instance, the word saved. If you notice that it, that word is used twice in, a, in this very short text, both in verse 9 and verse 10. And because of that, you can reasonably be certain that this is an important detail for this particular passage of Scripture, not to mention the idea of being saved is related to the idea of justification, which is something we find in verse 9, right? Since we've been justified, Paul says, right? And the idea of being justified and the idea of being saved, we know, right, they're related because we've been talking about that for months now since we've been talking about the gospel. And then you combine that with the fact that, that Paul is unpacking the gospel here. He's talking to us about what it means to be sa- saved, right? And so we can see this word then obviously is going to be an important thing for us to look at when we look at this text. But there's another word that's repeated in this text a number of times. In one form or the other, it's, re- it's repeated three times, and that is the word reconcile. Twice we see it in the, the past tense verb, which is reconciled, and then once we see the noun reconciliation, which is at the very end. And what we see from this text is Paul is is not simply talking about reconciliation generically. He's actually talking specifically about being reconciled to God. And so it's safe to assume that reconciliation or being reconciled is an important detail in this text simply because we see the word repeated, right? Which in fact it is. It's one of the major points of this text, the truth is that we can be reconciled to God actually is one of the most important blessings of the gospel. Right? And so reconciliation is a super important detail of this text. But, but really, what is reconciliation? And, and why is it so important? And why is it such a, a blessing of the gospel? Well, we know that reconciliation... Is, is ultimately the restoration of relationships, right? It's the restoration of a relationship that's been broken. It's where you have people or groups of people who have had, in the past, important relationships with other people or other groups of people, but for some reason, there is a fracture in the relationship. There is division, and reconciliation is when those relationships are made whole again. It's when the pieces of that relationship are put back together again. In fact, one dictionary de- uh, defines reconciliation as the end of estrangement. The end of estrangement. When relationships become broken, those relationships become estranged. right? And I think we're all familiar with that to at least some degree. We have all had relationships we've had with other people that ended up being fractured. We've become estranged from people that are important to us. If you've ever had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and that relation ended up in a breakup, you've become estranged from them. There's division, there's separation. We also see this in marriages, unfortunately, in our country. Many marriages end in divorce. Husbands and wives who divorce one another or are in the process of being divorced, they end up... In a broken relationship, we say that they have been estranged. Even more unfortunate is we see this happen between parents and their own children, adult children oftentimes. Children who just don't speak to their parents and parents who don't speak to their, their kids. Right? It's becoming more and more common in the culture around us, especially now it seems like the generational divide is, is growing. The differences between generations seem to be so far that it's easy for, for generations to be estranged from one another. Right? There seems to be less and less common ground. But we see that all the time. Someone gets their feelings hurt and they don't want to talk anymore. Or you know, there's real hurt or real damage done in the family and those relationships, the trust is, is gone. That relationship is severed. And it happens all the time with friends too. I mean, we have all been friends with people who we thought, we're going to be friends forever. We're just too much alike. Right? We are just too compatible and only for something stupid to happen or, or even not so stupid. But it creates a rift in that relationship, a division where, where it would, would have seemed impossible. And it seems like then now you can't even stand each other's presence anymore. We see this happen between siblings where they Hate each other and even neighbors who are just completely antagonistic to one another. You want to see the definition of estrangement. Just walk around Boron for a while. There have been there are people in this town who haven't talked in 50 years because of something happened to, to somebody in high school and they still hate each other. Right? That's estrangement. We all know what what this is like, what it is what it means to experience a brokenness in relationship. In fact, some of you probably are estranged in your relationship right now. I know, you know, I've experienced that recently. I've got a couple of family members in my own life where there is division, where there is not closeness, there is conflict, and there is separation. So we all know what it's like to be estranged from people, right? Well, reconciliation is the the end of that. Reconciliation is where division is gone, where strife has come to an end, where a relationship is restored. And I'm not talking about making peace to where you tolerate one another. I'm not talking about a truce where you kind of just tolerate each other's existence. I'm talking about true restoration, a true healing of the relationship. And I think that we've all experienced that at some point as well that we've had a relationship restored. In fact, if you are or have been estranged from someone you love, that's what you want. That's what you desire, especially if it's one of your kids, especially if it's your spouse. You don't want to only have the ability to briefly talk on the phone and to communicate important, vital details. You desire complete restoration to the relationship. You, you, you want a restoration in that closeness. You want restoration in intimacy with Those people. That's what restoration, that's what reconciliation is. It's a full restoration of a relationship. And that's the kind of reconciliation that's offered to us in the gospel. In light of what reconciliation is, it is one of the blessings, one of the greatest blessings of the gospel, where we were once estranged from God, the God that we were created to be in relationship with the God that we were under his wrath, we now have been reconciled back into a relationship with him. Right? And so up front, we can see that the repetition of this word, reconciliation, being reconciled to God, is an important detail of this text as we unpack it. It's an important blessing that Paul helps us to see as we go along this morning. But with that, there is one more detail here, another blessing that's a little bit harder to see for us. A detail that's really actually there, but it's underlying the surface. In fact, Matt was touching on it as we sing in songs this morning. It's a truth about our relationship with God that is revealed, that's related to salvation and reconciliation. But actually, it's the main point of this text. A truth that once you see it, it ought to cause you to rejoice in your hope in God. And so, yes... This text is about being saved and it's about reconciliation but it's also about the hope, the long-term hope that being reconciled to God brings us. And so turn with me to Romans chapter 5 verse 9 and we'll start unpacking that. Paul says, "Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, And the first thing that we need to notice in this verse is the word, therefore. Whenever you see the word, therefore, in the text, you all should ask the question, what's that word, therefore, therefore, right? Because it's therefore a reason. As we said, this is a conjunction, and we always need to pay attention to the conjunctions because it helps us to understand that the author is, is not just saying something just out in space by itself, that there is a context. He's stringing together his ideas, and that's what Paul's doing here. He's building an argument. He's putting his thoughts together to draw us to a certain place. And so with that, we should remind ourselves then of what Paul has said and the context in which he said it. And if you've been here for any of the last part of any of the last 30 messages in on uh, in the sermon series on Romans, you will remember that Paul wrote this letter for three main reasons. The most important one is he wrote this to explain the gospel to the church at Rome, so they would understand the gospel in full detail? That's the most important reason for us why he wrote this letter. In fact, right this this letter to the Romans is the most complete theological explanation of the gospel. This letter, if you just remember what's what's Romans about, it's about the gospel. It's about the gospel. It's about the gospel. Right in this letter, Paul explains what the detail what the gospel is. He explains the, God, the, the blessings that the gospel gives to those who believe it. And then when we, we get to chapter 12, he's going to explain how we are to live in light of the gospel. And so as we've talked about, Paul opens up his explanation here by declaring that he is not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes it. The gospel, right, a message that much of the world is ashamed of is actually the power of God to justify those who believe it. And I think, again, that should, that, that should remind us, we should remind ourselves of this all the time. The gospel is the power of God to save. The gospel is the power of God to save. Not me, right? Not you, right? Not my life in treating people good, is not the power to, the, of, of, the God, of God to save. It, the gospel is, meaning we, we need to proclaim the gospel. We need to tell people the truth of the gospel. Yes, we need to, to do so with grace, and we do need to love people so that way we, we don't ruin an opportunity for them to hear the gospel. But ultimately, no one's getting saved until they hear the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to save. right? But in that then, in that, Paul begins to unpack for us in chapters 1 through 4 what the gospel is. And he begins that explanation by talking about the bad news, that all of mankind is under sin and under the wrath of God and under his judgment. That mankind has become separated from God, the God that he was created to have a relationship with. He is estranged from God that he was created to be with. And worse than that, we are helpless and hopeless to change that ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. That's the bad news that Paul begins with, but then he tells us the good news the truth that God in Christ, what he has done for us to save us, right? That God in Christ did all that we couldn't do for ourselves so that we could be justified by faith in Jesus Christ, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the good news that Paul has been explaining to us. And then in chapter 5, beginning verse 1, Paul begins to explain what the gospel accomplishes or the blessings that the gospel gives to those who have faith in Christ. And that's where we are right now. That's, That's the context of what Paul is getting at here. And so when Paul says, therefore, he's saying in light of all of that and in light of the fact that we are justified through Christ's blood, he says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And there is a whole lot to unpack in that little little verse right there, but, but understand the context is even deeper than that. I want you to notice with me how verse 9 and verse, verse 1 of chapter 5 are, are very similar in structure and in content. In fact, I think, yeah, it's up there. In verse 1 we read, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 9 it says, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. I want you to realize that the similarities in these two verses is not an accidental detail. Both of these verses right, begin with the words, therefore and since. The order's a little bit different, but the emphasis is still the same. And they both contain the phrase, have been justified by. You see, see the similarities there? Again, this is not a coincidence because Paul is very deliberate here. These similarities should cause us to see that Paul is continuing to build his argument. Paul is moving from one point to the next. And what we need to see is Paul is grounding his thoughts on the settled reality that we are, if we're in Christ, objectively justified. That's the foundation of Paul's argument here is that we are justified in the sight of God which means our sins have been forgiven, which means that we have been granted Christ's righteousness. That's what it means to be justified in the sight of God. But also in these two verses, we can see the summary of the basis on which we become justified. In these two verses, we can see that justification comes by Christ's blood, which is what Christ has done for us, and it's granted to us by faith in Christ. This right here is the summary of what Paul has been arguing from, from the middle of, of, of chapter 3 to the end of chapter 4. This is the point that he has been harping on and driving home, the point that we have made a point to, to talk about over and over again, that justification was by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ, who shed his own blood to save us. In fact, in, in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, he says, there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God, that's the bad news, and are justified by His grace as a gift through what? The redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by what? By faith. Paul is saying, everything I'm going to tell you now is built on that truth. Paul in chapter 5 reminds us of this settled truth that we have been, past tense, truly justified if we have faith in Christ. We've been justified because Christ shed his blood on our behalf and because we received that by faith. In other words, the simple way to say it is this way, Christ bled and we believed. That's the whole basis of justification that Christ bled for us and we believed in him. And on that basis, Paul points us to the blessings that we receive from being justified. And in verse one, he says, we have been justified. If we've been justified, then the blessings we receive from that is the fact that we now have peace with God. And we spend a lot of time talking about that. But then in verse nine, he says, since we have been justified, The blessing we receive because of that is the fact that we will be saved from the wrath of God. Which is something that should cause us to sit up and pay attention because Paul is drawing our minds and our hearts to something here. Notice in verse 1, we have been justified, that's past tense, but we have peace with God, which then is what? Present tense, we have it now. But then in verse nine, it says, we've been justified, again, past tense, but we will be saved from the wrath of God. That's future tense. What is that about? Think about this. Throughout all of chapter five, Paul has been explaining the blessings of the gospel and all of the blessings to this point have been present tense blessings that we have right now. Paul said, since we have been justified, we have right now, peace with God. And even more than that, since we've been justified, we have, we have access to God's presence. That's one of the blessings we talked about and spent a lot of time unpacking, that we being justified, coming to faith in God, we have access to his presence anytime, anywhere, and we also have access to his grace. And because of that, we right now then have a current hope for the future, that we, we can live in hope of the future. And then he says that we can rejoice even in our suffering, because we have the blessing of the Holy Spirit who pours out God's love into our hearts actively. And then he says, we have proof of God's love for us here and now, because why? Christ died for us. Remember, that's what we talked about last week. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for us. We have the demonstration of his love for us. All we have to do is look at the cross and we can see that God loves us. These are all the present tense blessings that we have right now because of the gospel. We have them in this moment. But then Paul says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's future tense. Shall we be saved? Actually, is Future indicative passive, meaning that being saved is a future event and it's an event that's an established fact and it's an event that, that, that is something that's done to us and not by us. We don't participate in it. It happens to us. In other words, right in the future, God is going to save us from his own wrath, which then I think we should cause all of us to really think about what Paul is saying here and ask some, some big questions like, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought being justified meant being saved. Wasn't that the same thing? And we've said before that being justified is being saved from the penalty of our sins. When you're justified, you're declared righteous, and because of that, you are saved, present tense, from the penalty we rightly deserve because of our sins. If that's true, why is Paul now talking about that we're going to be saved in the future? Right? If we're already saved in the present tense, why is he saying we will be saved from God's Wrath. Not to mention, Paul has already said if you're justified, you're at peace with God. Doesn't that mean, having peace with God doesn't that mean that you've already been saved from his wrath? I mean, we talked a lot about how the fact that having peace with God means the hostilities between us and God are over. The fact that we were under God's wrath at one point, we are now at peace with God. Why does Paul now say we're going to be in the future saved from God's wrath? What does that mean? Well, Paul writes what he writes here for us for two important reasons. The first one is Paul is trying to help us to see the already but not yet reality of salvation. The already but not yet reality of being saved. That you were already saved but not yet saved. And I'm not saying that to be confusing to you. I'm saying that because that's what the reality that he's trying to describe here. Yes, we have been saved. Yes, we have been justified. But no, we've not been fully saved yet. You see, we've been justified by faith and the penalty of sin has been done away with and we've been saved from, from, the, from the penalty of sin itself. But no, we are not yet completely saved from the power of sin or the presence of sin in our lives though we've been saved from from its penalty, it still affects us. It still influences us. If you're a Christian for any length of time, you kind of understand how that works. That's the reality that we live with as Christians. We put our faith in Christ and we are the moment that we believe justified by faith in Christ and His atoning work on the cross and we rejoice in that truth because we know that we have been objectively saved, but at the same time, we're painfully aware of the fact that even though that we've been radically transformed, we are still very far from perfect. I mean, if you think you're perfect, we you need to talk afterwards, okay? We are all aware, painfully, of the fact that the closer you get to God, the more aware of the sin that you still have in your life. That's the fact that we still sin. All of us still will say and do stupid things today. It's going to happen. In fact, Paul says if you, anyone who says he doesn't have sin, is a liar, it's not of the Lord. The fact is as Christians we can plainly see that sin still plagues us in our lives it's still around us it's still in us it still affects us and so in a very real way yes we have been saved but no we are still being saved. If you're a Christian you understand that sin inhabits you you are still at the same time a sinner and a saint. In spite of the fact that we have been objectively saved. And our hope is that one day when we finally come face to face with the Lord, we'll be completely saved, not just from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin and also the presence of sin. And so, yes, there is, as Paul is trying to help us to see, an already but not yet reality of our salvation. We are saved and we're being saved and we will be saved. It's the first thing that we need to understand when we look at what Paul's saying here. The second thing is, after Paul spends so much time assuring us of our present tense justification before God, he now moves on in this text to assure us of our future salvation. Which, by the way, as Matt, if you listen to the songs, he he sees this, right? We move on To the assurance of our future salvation is is the main point of the text here. You see, the main point of the text is to reveal to us that reconciliation is certainly a blessing of the gospel, and that reconciliation we have with God gives us a true and real assurance of our salvation, that God will not just save us now, but will save us in the future. This text ultimately is about the assurance that we have as believers in Christ. Notice what he says, therefore, since therefore we have been justified by his blood in the past, much more shall we be saved future by him from the wrath of God. Paul is talking about our future salvation and he's giving us assurance that it will happen because of what happened in the past. In other words, because you have been justified, you will be saved. Notice Paul is specific about what we will be saved from. He says that we'll be saved from the wrath of God. And again, it's an important for us to think about what he means at the moment. First of all, this is the great problem that all of mankind faces. It's the wrath of God. Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath in the present tense is his ongoing hatred and anger towards sin and sinners. God is holy, righteous, and just, and he cannot abide sin or sinners. And so his wrath actively burns against sin and those who are in their sin. This is the problem that humanity faces, the fact that God's wrath abides on them. But again, it's, it's a fact we don't want to talk about. In fact, if you ask most Christians, what did Christ do for you? Most of them will say, well, Christ died to save me from my sins, which is true. But it's only part of the truth. As if our sins is all that we ought to be concerned about. We ought to be concerned about the consequences of our sins as well, which is what? The wrath of God, God's hatred of our sin, God's anger that burns against our sin, God's judgment of our sin. That's what we ought to be concerned about. You see, there's a future tense sense of God's wrath as well, right? Not just just here and now anger, but God's ultimate judgment of sin. Not only does God hate it, not only does, does, does our sin make us estranged from God, God one day, if you read the Bible, it'll tell you that one day he will finally and fully judge sin and pour out his wrath on that sin. As Paul talked about in Romans chapter 2, in verse 5, he says, but because of your hardened, and impenitent hearts, you were storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This right here is the problem of all of mankind. This is the problem that universally everyone faces. Not only is God's wrath revealed against present tense sin, He will one day, future tense, judge our sin and pour out His fury and wrath on that sin. As He says in verse 8 of that same chapter, He says, But for all those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The picture is really, really clear. We can't avoid what He's saying here. This is the great and terrible problem that mankind faces, the future of God's wrath. But notice again Paul says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood in the past, much more shall we be saved future from him, I mean by him from the wrath of God. Paul is saying that since we already have been justified which which was purchased by the blood of Christ in the past, we shall be saved by Christ from the coming wrath of God. You see, what Paul is trying to help us to understand is that our justification that we have in this moment, because of what Christ has done for us and because of our faith in Christ, because we are justified right now, we can have confidence that God will save us all the way to the end. This is the dividing line for so many people who call themselves Christians. There are so many people who who claim to believe the gospel, who claim to follow Christ, who live in perpetual worry that they might not make it to the end. And Paul is trying to help us to see that because what Christ has done for us in the past, we can have confidence that God will finish what he started in us. That we can have assurance of our salvation. And there are two important details to notice here. Notice, first of all, the pattern the pattern of how he sets this up. More specifically, the phrase that he uses here a couple of times, it's the phrase, much more. It's kind of a weird thing that gets translated in English, but there's a point in the reason why he uses this phrase. He says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. See, Paul is not just putting these words together. He's actually employing a literary device where he's, comparing and contrasting and what he's doing, he's moving from greater to lesser, right? Or he's moving from harder to easier. And in essence, what he's saying is, if Jesus can do the hard thing over here, then he can certainly do the easy thing over here. That's the pattern that he's employing here in these next couple of verses. In other words, since Jesus shed his own blood, to justify you and to pardon you from your sin, which was was supremely difficult. It required his life. He has the ability then to save you from the future judgment of God, which is easy by comparison. That's the point that he's making here. Paul is saying that since Jesus came into the world through the miracle of the Incarnation, And since he lived the perfect righteous life that no one else in history has ever been able to live except him, and he did so to earn for us a righteousness that we could never earn on our our, our own, and since he died on the cross to make atonement for all of our sins and suffered in our place and endured the full weight of the the wrath of God so that God the Father can declare us righteous and justified, if he can do that, he can certainly save us from the future wrath of God to come. That's his point. The second thing to notice is Jesus is the one who justified and saved us in the past and is also the one who saves us in the future. Right? Look at the text. Since therefore we have been justified by who? His blood, by Christ, much more shall we be saved by who? By him, by Jesus, from the wrath of of God. You see, Jesus didn't come simply to save you from your sin. He came to save you from the wrath of God. That's the answer to the question. Why did Jesus come? He came to save me from my sin and the wrath of God. That's the answer. And Paul is saying quite clearly that if Jesus can save you from God's wrath upon your sin in the present tense and give you peace with God here and now, He can certainly save you from the future judgment and the wrath of, from, his, from sin. In other words, you can have assurance that not only are you saved now, but that you will also be saved in the future. That's the point that he's making here even if you struggle and fall in sin. What Paul is trying to help us to see again and again and again is salvation is of the Lord. It's always of the Lord and will always be of the Lord. If you were saved, you will not lose your salvation. And the reason for that is because Jesus has the power to bring you into the kingdom and he has the power to keep you in the kingdom, which is easy by comparison. A point that Paul emphasizes and what he says next as well. He says, for, for the word because is fitting, because if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, say that phrase again, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Again, notice the expression, much more. Paul moves, again, from, from greater to lesser, or he moves from harder to easier. He's saying if Christ can do the hard thing, he can certainly do the easy thing. And he says if Christ can accomplish the hard thing of reconcile us in our relationship to God while we were God's enemies, right through his death on the cross, then he can certainly save us in the future through his resurrected life. Again, the main point of the text is the assurance of our salvation. That's the blessing of the gospel. That God can save us in the present is the same God that can save us and keep us saved in the future. That's the point that he's emphasizing here. It's the security for us as believers. Now, there are some people, for whatever reason, who will believe with all their hearts that you can right, be saved legitimately, that you can be saved, right, but somehow by all your own actions then unsave yourself, that you can lose your salvation. And they would deny what, you know, that what Paul is talking about here is the assurance of your salvation. But again, look at the text. Paul says we were enemies, right? When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, right? We didn't get reconciled because we started being nice to God. We were reconciled when we were enemies through Christ's death, right? And the thing is, we have to really come to terms with the language here. The word enemies is a very strong word here. We were God's enemy in the way this is worded. He was ours as well. Some people trying to impose their feelings on on God will say, wait a minute. We might have been God's enemy, but he wasn't our enemy. That's not what the text says. Right? And that's not supported by the context. The word and the context conveys that there was mutual hostility between us and God, hence him having wrath. We were not God's neighbor who just annoy him. Right? We, we know people like that, right? You try to be nice, but they just kind of get under your skin. We're not like Those obnoxious community members who are ignorant of the fact that we're bothering someone, right? We have people like that in our lives. The Bible says that we were God's enemies. Not simply ignorant of our actions, but willfully in conflict with God and he with us. We rebelled against him and his wrath burned against us. Remember Paul said in the beginning of the gospel, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. We were his enemies, and we hated God, and God hated us. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is a truth that people will shudder to hear. But it's, it's true. We, in our unrighteousness, hated God, and God, because of his righteousness, hated us. Now, before you push back and say, well, that's just not true. God doesn't hate anyone. Listen to what God's word says. Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 through 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. All of them. Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. The Bible makes it clear that God does indeed hate the wicked. He hates his enemies. He hates his evildoers. And that's what we were before we were in Christ. We were wicked. We were evildoers. We were enemies of God, hating and being hated. Now, the reason why we struggle with this word and this idea is because what we try to do is we try to take our ideas of human understanding of hate and we try to apply that to God as if that's the way that he relates to us. We try to think in terms of how we hate other humans and then we, in in our sinful nature, and we try to apply that to God, but that's just simply not true. God does not hate the way that humans do, just as God does not love the way humans do. We depend on the fact that God's love is different than our love, then we should depend on the fact that his hate is different than our hate. God's hatred, just like His love, is far and away different than than our own experiences. What we need to understand is God, in all His perfection, is capable of both loving and hating at the same time. That He can love and hate us at the same time. As John Piper, he says it this way, love and hate are simultaneous as God looks upon hateful, rebellious, corrupt, loathsome, wicked, God-dishonoring sinners, which is exactly what we were. God can simultaneously love and hate his enemies because he is, he is not corrupted by our fickle, sinful nature. John Piper continues and says, now here, there are distinctions that we need to make, right? Hate and love have, have two meanings. Hate can be an intense loathing of a quality or hate can be beyond that, the intense intentionality to destroy. Love, similarly, can be an intense delight in equality. It can also be an intense intentionality to bless in spite of the presence of some unsavory quality. You see, God has every right to hate sinners because of their sin. And because of His justice, God has resolved to destroy them if their sin is not dealt with. That's the truth of the gospel that we're facing. That's the bad news that we must come to terms with. This is the universal problem of all mankind that Paul has been unpacking in the gospel, that we were God's hated enemies. But God simultaneously, because of his love for us, even though we were still his enemies in that condition, he sent his son to die for us. That's the essence of the gospel. That's the essence of the good news. That God loves us in spite of the fact that we don't deserve His love. We deserve His wrath. We deserve His condemnation. We deserve His hatred. But God, by His own grace, chooses to love us. And in that love, He then makes a way for us through Christ to no longer be enemies. To no longer be hated, but to be reconciled into an intimate, up-close relationship with him. That is the scandal of the gospel. That's why the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. God took his enemies who deserve his hatred, who deserve his wrath, and he loved them to the point that he killed his own sinless son. It pleased God to crush him on our behalf his enemies, so that we could be reconciled to him. You see, it's God's monumental hate of sin that helps to reveal his even more monumental love for us. That's what Paul says. While we were enemies, it was in that moment we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. It's when we were at the, the very ugliest we could possibly be that God reached down to reconcile us. This statement echoes the, the truth of verse 8, which says, But God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, while we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. And there are a number of things that we need to see here. First of all, that justification came to us through Christ in spite of us. We have never, hear me on this, church, please, we have never ever, ever earned it, and we never will. We have never, ever deserved it by what we've done. We have never contributed anything to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. God loves us and justified us and reconciled us before we could ever do anything for Him. He justified us while we were sinners, while we were rebelling against Him, while we did everything possible to be deserving of His hatred and His fury and wrath. That's the picture of God's grace. It was when we were at our very worst that God then rescued us, which means in salvation, as we've said before, and I'll say again a thousand more times, salvation is 100% the work of God. He took the initiative. He did all the work. He took all the steps. He gave us grace and mercy and love while we were deserving of justice, wrath, and hatred. God reached down and rescued us while we were in the middle of hating and spurning Him. When I think about this, I think about those people who go to rescue wild animals, right? And they're trying to rescue these critters that are biting and clawing and trying to hurt them, right? It's, that's us, but to, to an infinite degree. This is the overwhelming truth that Paul is painting, by the way. While we were sinners, Christ died to atone for our sins. Again, that's the scandal of the gospel. And even more, Paul says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled, by God, re- reconciled to God by the death of his son. Christ died on the cross so that we could be restored in a relationship with God, not simply pardoned, right? and spared the torment of hell, but that we have been reconciled as family. Through the death of Christ, the relationship with God that we were created for, the relationship that was destroyed by sin, has been completely restored. Again, remember the veil in the temple, the picture that represents The separation from the holy place and the most holy place. The separation between God and man. The the symbol of the cherubim that showed that the way to God is closed. You cannot come into His presence. But when Christ died, the veil was torn and that relationship was, was restored. Hostilities are over. And again, the idea behind the word reconciled means to be made right, to be made whole. God did not simply accept our terms of surrender and then just tolerate our existence. Right? He reconciled us. He reconciled us as family. We're no longer hated sinners, but beloved children. That's enough, I think, for us to rejoice for the rest of our lives. We go from objects of wrath to honored guests seated at his table. Through Christ, we, have become, we, come, we, we are welcomed home by the Father, and the shoes have been put on our feet, and the robe on our shoulders and the, the ring placed on our finger. This is, this is the picture of the prodigal son. Do you remember that story? The son returns home, and the father, and the son's like, I'm not even worthy to be your slave. Just let me just work for you. And the father's like, none of that. You know, kill the fatted calf, put the robe on him, put the shoes on him, put, put the ring on him, all the symbols of, of complete restoration. The life-giving relationship that had been shattered before has been restored. We've been reconciled to God, and that's and that is one of the blessings of the gospel. This is what was accomplished by Christ's atoning death on the cross. And what Paul is saying is if Christ can accomplish that, if Christ can accomplish that by his death, if he can accomplish something so miraculous as saving us, God's enemies from the wrath of God and reconciling us back to him in a relationship, he can certainly keep us saved and keep us reconciled in this life by the resurrection and by his continual intercessory work on our behalf. If Christ can save us when we're at our worst, how much more can he save us now that we have been spared the wrath of God and made right in the sight of God? How much more will he save us now that we have a new nature and a new heart? How much more will he save us now that the barrier between us and God has been torn down? How much more will he save us now that we have been given the Holy Spirit who indwells us and leads us and guides us? If Christ can do the hard thing, then He can also do the easy thing. That is the blessing of the gospel, that we have assurance of our salvation in Christ. We have assurance that God will finish what He started in us. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, a verse I think we all should memorize. He says, and I'm sure of this, I'm confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began that work in you will be the one to complete it. If Christ saved us by His blood, how much more will He keep us saved by His life? That is the blessing of the gospel. Now with all of that, there's still some who insist that a person can lose their salvation, but that's just because they neglect to see that salvation has never been something we gained by our own efforts. Salvation was granted to us in spite of us by the grace of God. This is the picture that we see over and over again that Paul put up in front of our face. And if God took the initiative to save us by the death and blood of his own son, how arrogant we must be to think that, we don't, that, that God doesn't have the power to finish what, we, what he starts in us or that we have the power to undo what God himself is doing. God is the one who keeps his promises. That's the point. He finishes what he starts. And because of that, and because we have been reconciled to God, we have the assurance here and now that the future is secure because God has promised it to be secure. And in light of that, Paul says, more than that, we also rejoice through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul wraps up this little section by declaring that we, now that we've received reconciliation through Christ and that it's a settled reality, we have and we, we've, been, we've been reconciled back to God, and because of that we rejoice. Right? We glory in God through Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice something if in this part of, of this explanation of the blessings of the gospel, from verses one through 11, Paul again repeats this same point. Notice in this section he uses the expression three times we rejoice John Stott says that the Christian life ought to be marked by this that we rejoice that there is joy why because through him we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and we rejoice now in God himself who who gave us the gift of reconciliation. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's our future hope. And because of that, we rejoice in our suffering now, but we also rejoice in God himself because we have been reconciled. That's why we can rejoice. And so brothers and sisters, as we we think about then what Paul is drawing our attention to here, not simply that we have been reconciled, which is the blessing, but the fact that that reconciliation assures us of our future hope. As we think about that, we ought then to be motivated to leave here and go share that hope with other people. The promise is that whatever work that you do out there will not be in vain. Why? Because as God is the one who is the one keeping his promise. We should rejoice. This should fill our hearts with joy as we face the difficulties of the political circumstances around us. This truth ought to fill our hearts with joy as we see our pocketbooks dwindling because food prices and gas prices are going the wrong way, right? This still ought to fill us full of joy as we still see our our country dividing itself over issue after issue and we see so much hatred in our countrymen. The whole world has many reasons to not rejoice, but we have every reason to rejoice. Why? Because not only did Christ die to justify you, He lives to see that you will be justified all the way to the end. He lives so that you will be saved. Because you are saved. You were being saved. And one day, Finally, when you stand in the presence of God, you will finally be fully saved. That is the hope that we hold on to. And that is the hope that can't be taken from us by diseases or politicians or by wayward family members. That's the hope that we have, and that's the hope the world needs. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.